Though the global pandemic may be slowing things down, Spring Branch is taking tangible steps forward to keep our economy strong, like supporting our local businesses, linking them to free online business courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast, all about real estate, the dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Marissa Leck, real estate reporter at Houston Chronicle. And I'm Rebecca Schutz, housing reporter at the Houston Chronicle. And today we have Diane Cohen. Hi, it's great to be here today. We're so happy to have you. Dan covers architecture and home design. She's written a string of stories recently. Yeah. One um, that has gotten some particular notoriety, which is about Jim Crane, the owner of the Houston Astros, uh, bought a mansion in River Oaks that was historic, and he decided to tear it down, and it sparked a lot of conversations. And, you know, it just brought brings up a lot of other points about kind of the loss of these historic properties in River Oaks. It's not just the this Jim Crane property. It's a number of historic homes that have been torn down over the years. So we're going to be talking about that, kind of about um, how landmark homes work in Houston, some of the architectural history in River Oaks. Um, so mansions, Astros, River Oaks, it's all interesting. It's all here. And one of the homes that got saved. So I feel like yes, it'll, it'll, it'll be fun talking about yes. um, this neighborhood that in a way, like, is the aspirational neighborhood in Houston and how it's being reshaped. We'll dive into all that now. When I first came to Houston, I remember, like, driving through the River Oaks neighborhood and just being like, wow, what are these houses? Like, the and the oak trees and all these gardens and these sprawling lots. And, you know, it just felt like it was so far away from kind of the downtown skyscrapers and from the rows and rows of like cookie cutter homes in in the suburbs. Uh, And I think part of the reason why it felt that way was because it was started very intentionally and it was supposed to be like a quieter retreat from the rest of the city with the original founders, Will and Mike Hogg, who founded it, the River Oaks neighborhood in the 20s. And at the time, it was for whites only because Houston was still segregated. But they still, um, you know, they envisioned River Oaks as like a mixed income community, which was interesting. I didn't realize that. That dream didn't really come to fruition. But the part of the Hogs dream that did come to fruition was this reputation of the neighborhood as a place with really beautiful architecture, kind of this beacon of taste and sophistication. It is. Um, it is, for sure. It's one of those neighbor uh, neighborhoods that really set the tone for what good architecture would be in the nicer neighborhoods in Houston. And so, because yeah. it started so long ago, it has become a neighborhood that shows our architectural history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that in recent years, there's been like sort of the slow demise in or slow demolition of some of these historic homes. And, you know, the Chronicle has covered that previously. And it's sort of this worry that as 
one by one these homes are demolished that we're kind of losing not only the character of the neighborhood but but a piece of Houston's history. There's definitely that fear that yeah. Houston has become known as a teardown city and that homes just get demolished in all kinds of neighborhoods. And in some cases, it's fine to knock the house down. Maybe it is badly damaged, or it's not architecturally significant. But in a neighborhood like River Oaks, many more of them are significant. Yeah. And and I think one of the uh, more notable homes recently, which kind of brought up this issue again, was this home at 2124 River Oaks Boulevard, which was bought uh, last year by Houston Astros owner Jim Crane. Uh, And Diane covered this recently. And could you talk about the house in general, kind of what's the background of it and the history? So the house was designed in 1937 by John F. Staub. And he was one of the city's early residential architects who really established how the wealthy would live, Hmm. um, how their homes would be an example of who they were, of how powerful or influential or how wealthy they were, that they were designing homes before air conditioning. So they had to orient it on a lot to capture the prevailing breezes to keep Mm. them cooler. Um, You know, within probably 20 or 30 or 40 years, they didn't have to do that anymore. But definitely this house at 2124 River Oaks Boulevard. So River Oaks Boulevard is one of the premier streets in River Oaks. It's this sort of grand boulevard that leads up to River Oaks Country Club. And John Staub even designed the clubhouse at River Oaks Country Club. And so this house was huge. Originally, it was a little bit smaller and it had been added onto, but it was 16,000 square feet had seven bedrooms, swimming pool, tennis court. It was loaded. Like everything that you would think a big mansion for rich people would have, it had it all. And it was on a huge lot, like over two and a half acres. So by River Oak standards, it's like the lot value alone is enormous. Yeah, yeah. Because some of them might only be on an acre. Some of the smaller River Oaks homes, maybe a half acre. But this was like two and a half, three acres. So just the land itself was valuable, regardless of the house. And so the the most recent owner was Faya Seraphim. He's a billionaire who was an investor, art collector, and a huge philanthropist. His name is on a lot of buildings around town. And he bought it, and um, for the last several years, it has only been his entertaining house. Oh, so, really? He didn't, he didn't live there? He did not live oh, in the wow. River Oaks Boulevard home. He used it for parties. And there are plenty of very wealthy people who have the house they live in and the house they entertain in. You know, that's just how they do it. And so they let other people use it. Like I know people have said they went to a baby shower there or a wedding shower because they were friends of the seraphims and they let them use it. Um, I think even once our best dressed ladies were photographed in this house. Oh, okay, cool. Yes. And so, you know, a lot of people have been in the house. Certainly a lot of people have driven by it because people drive on this street at Christmas to look at all the pretty decorations. So this house is pretty recognizable. And it was increasing in value a lot. It would go Mm. up two or three million dollars a year in appraised value. So we get to mid-July. And so uh, Faya Seraphim died last year. Mm. His estate is being... You know, unraveled, unraveled, you know, so all of a sudden on social media, there's just people complaining, posting videos, whatever, that um, this house is being in the process of being demolished. And they claim that Astro's owner, Jim Crane, had bought it 
for $25 million and tore it down. So you've got three things to check. Is it really demolished? Mm. Well, you can look in the pictures and see that it's actually <laughs> happening. It's happening. Yeah. Was the value really $25 million, the, what he paid for it? And was it really Jim Crane? Mm-hmm. And so um, I alerted our photo desk. I'm like, get somebody out there. I was on vacation, but I see this <laughs> message. I'm like, if, if you need to do this now, go ahead. If it can wait, I'll do it. I'll jump on it as soon as I'm back. In the meantime, though, I will alert the photo editor <laughs> because a photographer needs to get out there to yeah. get anything at all. The house was demolished, but some of the, the earth-moving type equipment, was still, heavy equipment, was still on the site. So at least you've got that presence that um, it's not just a barren lot with, you know, plain grass. Right. And so the first calls I made were to Jim Crane's people to find out, did he really buy this house? So he owns Worldwide Logistics, so you can try that, which I did, and sat on hold for a very long time, left a voicemail message. I honestly don't know if anyone listens to voicemail messages anymore, and I don't trust those. So I thought <laughs> I will leave just... leave a voicemail, I'm always like, I'm also going to send you an email in case you yes, don't listen to it. Yes, yes. It's like layers. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, if you get phone numbers, email addresses, every, you try everything you can. And But he owns the Astros, too, and I think they are easier to get through, too. Uh, but I kind of feel like with some people, um, if you are trying to confirm, do you own this or not, they can just not call you back. Right? Oh, yeah. They yeah. don't have to call me back. Yeah. So I want them to know I already have a fair amount of information about who owns the house. Yeah. And I'm going to use it in the story if I can't get confirmation. And out of fairness, it would be better for them to simply acknowledge they bought the house. Yeah, yeah. So the information I had... Did it, from- wait, did it say current owner? Yes. On, on HCAT? So just a quick note, when I'm talking about HCAT here, I'm referring to the Harris County Central Appraisal District and what Harris County records show for the ownership of the property online. So usually you can type in an address on Harris County's website and find the name of the person or people or company who actually owns the home. But some properties just say current owner, instead of a real name. So it's just another way for an owner to basically conceal who actually owns the property or provide an extra level of privacy. Okay, so a lot of times mm-hmm. with these wealthy estates or mansions, the um, the owner can request it say current. Just It just says current owner. Instead of saying their name, it says current owner. And then it's a process to confirm who that actually is. It is. Right? It really yeah. is. And actually, anyone can do that. Like, if we felt oh, okay. like, yeah. for our own safety, we don't want people looking us up. My little townhome in Midtown. <laughs> right. But, you know, you never know. A lot of people yeah. are very security conscious. Yeah. Uh, but certainly a lot of wealthy people, a lot of the professional athletes in town, they don't have their names on their houses. It mm-hmm. just says mm-hmm. current owner. Mm-hmm. So at 2124 River Oaks Boulevard, it said the owner was 2124 River Oaks Boulevard LLC. Okay, so it was an LLC. So it yeah. was, they just named it the street address. And so then it had a mailing address on Inverness, which is another exclusive, yes. very exclusive street yes. in River Oaks. So I looked up that house and it said the owner was current owner. And it had a different mailing address, too. And its mailing address was 501 Crawford, which is Minute Maid Park. Bingo. So, (laughs) I mean, who else is it going to be? No one else is going to have a mailing address of 501 Crawford Mm. than Jim Crane. 
So I email the media people for the Astros, tell them I'm tr- I'm working on this story, trying to confirm that Jim owns this house and how much he paid for it, if he's willing to share that. Um, this is the information I have now, and this is the information I will use if I don't hear back. And it's legitimate information from HCAD, and I right. will explain how some people use current owner and list a different mailing address, and I sort of gave the rundown right. from 2124 River Oaks to the Inverness to the mailing address of 501 Crawford. And, you know, when you sort of write it out, even you write it totally straight, it is hilarious. <laughs> It's like you have, no, I've dealt with this too. You have to spend a paragraph just to get to who the the current owner is. It just reads better and it just sounds better if the owner is willing to just come out and talk to you. Right. Because everyone (laughs) kind of looks a little bit silly that you had to go down this rabbit hole. Right. So um, pretty quickly, his general counsel got back with me, his lawyer for both Worldwide Logistics and the Houston Astros, like their top lawyer, called me. Who is their top lawyer? His name is Giles Kibbe. Okay. And it just coincidentally, it was one of my girlfriends, it was her birthday that day. And I thought, they're not going to call me back anytime soon. <laughs> so we're a group of us are taking her out to lunch. So I'm in my car. And wouldn't you know, the phone rings. Hi, this is Giles Kibbe. I'm general counsel for Jim Crane. I'm thinking, I'm in my car. I'm in my car. I didn't bring a notebook. So I'm digging through my glove box. You know, these little slippery gasoline station receipts Mm -hmm. that are about an inch and a half wide. Mm -hmm. I've got a whole bunch of those. So I'm grabbing a pen and I'm taking my notes on my little (laughs) gasoline receipt. But he was very nice about it all. And I got everything I needed and then proceeded to do some more reporting, calling um, Preservation Houston to get some comments about the value of of a house like that to Houston, what the loss feels like. There's an architectural historian, Stephen Fox, who is, you know, above reproach. He is the man when it comes to architectural history. He teaches at both Rice and UH and knows everything about every significant building. Shout out to Stephen Fox. Yes, for sure. (laughs) Big shout out to him. But uh, definitely an expert. So I got uh, some great comments from him. And, you know, so the story had history about River Oaks, how it came to be, what it was meant to be, who John Staub was, his significance as an early residential architect in the city, and then the significance of this house and some Mm -hmm. of the events that have happened through decades, because I think that Faya Seraphim had owned it since the mid-1990s. Oh, So he'd wow. owned it for a long time and had had a lot of parties. And at one time, maybe he did live there. I don't know. But uh, he lived actually uh, on Do Sleepy you know, Hollow. So um, was it a landmark? Or it no? was not. So okay. that's a good thing to bring up. Perfect yeah. timing. So historic homes can have some different designations. One mm-hmm. is to be a landmark, mm-hmm. which you get a plaque that says this is a historic home, and then it'll tell you who either the uh, certainly who the original owner was, who the architect was, um, and sometimes any other significant people who lived there. Mm-hmm. And then another status level is a protected home, a landmark protected home. If it's protected, that means it's protected from demolition. Just to clarify, protected landmarks technically can be demolished, actually. So the owner first has to submit an application to the Houston Archaeological and Historical Commission to prove that the home has seriously deteriorated beyond reasonable repair or that it would present some sort of unusual economic hardship to maintain it as it is. The commission would have to approve of the application before the protected landmark can be demolished. So it does create another hurdle in terms of demolition. 
The problem comes in in the real estate world of people are afraid that it, you can have a historic home and have that landmark plaque and it just looks very nice. If you have a protected home, though, that's going to limit who wants to buy this house because older homes are a lot of work. Sometimes if they haven't been taken care of and since they hadn't lived in this house, um, like I saw pictures of the interior and I thought they looked kind of dated, to be honest, as a house owned by a billionaire many times over, he could have thrown a couple million dollars at the house and fixed it up um, at any point in time. So it was kind of dated. So someone's going to buy it and they're going to have to repair things. Uh, And so when I talked to Jim Crane's lawyer, he said, so this house has a basement and there are not many houses that have basements because in Houston, yeah. we're so low, right? Uh, we're so close to sea level. And he said the basement had flooded four times. That The wiring and plumbing were not up to code. So they would have had to bring the house up to code. As soon as you open up a wall, guess what? You've got to bring it all up to code. The house had a lot of deferred maintenance. That's hard to deal with. Yeah. I was going to say this like landmark and protected landmark thing also are like very Houston. Like it's um, because other cities do it differently, right? In Houston, there is like this idea of landmark where you can get like some recognition for the history, but you have no obligation. Right. Except for, I guess, um, a developer has to wait 90 days before they do anything, but there's no, nothing beyond filing for a permit. And then, so then the property owner can decide whether or not, oh, am I going to apply for a protected landmark? And in Houston, you know, people bulk at that. Yes, because then they think, well, especially a house like that, so expensive. Um, you know, I never confirmed that he bought it for $25 million because it was a private transaction, not through Off MLS. Market, yeah. So you can't really track that down. But the word on the street, it was $25 million. At the very least, the house was worth twenty four. How many people are going to spend that much money on an older home that needs a lot of work, mm. you know? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and so you, but another layer is historic neighborhoods and historic districts, like in the Heights. Even if your house is not a landmark, but you're in a, you know, a protected landmark, but you're in a protected neighborhood, then you still have to adhere to so a lot does, of those does rules. So does River Oaks, I guess I would, I, I assumed that there was some historic neighborhood status for I don't think Oaks. so. I don't think there is. I don't yeah. think so. The Heights is one. Cortland Place might be. Uh, the Heights is the most South, obvious. Or Boulevard Oaks, Southampton yes. has something. I, I don't know if it's... And we've talked about that not just uh, conservation district. districts yeah, yeah. also, which we've had another whole podcast on. Um, so there's all these different layers. But I was surprised that this house... Like, I guess I just assumed that River Oaks had some sort of some district... <laughs> Prohibiting I don't think it. so. I don't yeah, think no, so. Yeah, no, I mean, at the, the fact that it's not just this house that has been demoed, but several houses over the past, you know, few years. They have been. Yeah. And especially in River Oaks, Lisa Gray did a story maybe a couple of years mm-hmm. ago because yeah. there was a flurry of them in a very short period of time. It was something like 18 or 20 demolition permits in River Oaks alone. And these houses were dropping like flies. Yeah, and I guess this was something I... I was just curious about when we talk about these demolitions, we often talk about like the architects and like the value of the architecture being taken down. And I know at the time uh, Lisa Gray was writing, there were a lot of spec homes, which spec, uh, if you aren't familiar with that, that means um, the home isn't being built by the person who's going to live there. The home is being built by an investor who's going to try to sell it. So they're trying to like predict what someone will pay money for, you know? And I see why like that might not be 
um, as architectural, you know, well, relying on the, yeah, it's what's the design that's going to appeal to the biggest amount of people, right? And for the most money. And to sell as quickly as possible. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm assuming Jim Crane is going to get an architect, right? And he's going to build it for himself. So I guess I'm just curious also about... I feel like I I sort of understand the architecture being lost, but I don't really understand the architecture that's being added. Mm. Well, we'll find out, because I did ask about what is he going to build to replace it, Uh and the lawyer told me they're just not far out. So we'll find out, you know, they'll probably hire a whole team of an architect, an interior designer, a landscape architect, Mm-hmm. And they'll work together as a team, and we'll see who it ends up being, and that will say a lot about. I mean, I'm sure it will be tasteful and sure. beautiful and nice. A question was, did he save anything? Yeah. Oh, right. Out? Yeah. So, in the course of reporting, I did not initially ask uh, Giles Kibbe if he had removed any of the materials. So, I'm talking to David Bush at Preservation Houston, and David said, "I feel like a broken record. These houses keep getting torn down." Mm. And he says, "I just wish people would remove the good stuff from them." There's incredible wood flooring, the Mm -hmm. quality of wood you can't even buy now, like really old growth Mm. wood, beautiful old marble and beautiful fireplaces and antique, what is now antique lighting. But there's some great materials in these houses. And sometimes they get demolished and everything is just hauled off to the Mm. landfill. And so... I had not asked the lawyer, you know, did he take anything out of it? I hadn't thought of that. So I called him right back, and he took my call, thankfully, and said, yes, we took a lot of stuff out. We did extensive deconstruction. And so there's a whole economy that builds up around this. And and it kind of leads to another point, which some other stories ended up coming out of this one story, one of them being what happens to all this stuff. Right. Because um, Portland, Oregon enacted a law that's a deconstruction salvage law that they phased in so that Mm -hmm. homes of a certain age that had historically significant stuff were required to be deconstructed, I think even by hand. Like, you have to take these apart by hand to get this stuff out. And and you have to even be certified to be able to be the people who deconstruct these houses. And, and over time, they I think they started in the 1940s and then backed it up to the 1920s uh, in terms of the age of the house that had to be deconstructed first. Mm. And then um, San Antonio enacted a similar law about a year ago. And so they start out kind of slowly because there have to be people certified to take this stuff out. There have to be retail locations for where this stuff goes and is sold, Mm. then you have to have a market for it. Like, there have to be people who know it exists and want it. Yeah. That's the part that comes around slowly. And I think in Portland, it took the four or five years to really get going and really get the word out that this stuff was out there. I don't know how affordable it is. I would tend to think some of it is more affordable than others. There's there's a big demand for reclaimed wood. Mm -hmm. Right. So the wood flooring, but you're still going to have to refinish it, but that's not that big of a deal. Um, Some of the marble is kind of worn and chipped. Not everybody likes that, but some people consider it the patina. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes the stone, I would imagine the flooring has high value. If it was really good quality lighting, like maybe they pulled out Baccarat crystal chandeliers. Mm -hmm. I I was at an auction once that had the Baccarat, Crystal chandeliers, I want to say, came out of the Meekums' houses. 
and you know they were about to be wow. auctioned. So, so Jim Crane is going to be selling these materials. The salvage company would. The salvage company. Oh, so okay. the, whatever company took it out, they're the people who deconstruct it. Mm-hmm. The manual mm-hmm. labor. And then it goes to another level of company that is the retail outlet that's going to sell it. I don't know where theirs was taken. Um, there are places, there used to be a place called Atkins Architectural Antiques on in Midtown. It closed a while back. Historical societies have warehouses. There's a, his, I think it's called Historic Houston that has a warehouse that sells this kind of stuff. Galveston has a big preservation community and the people who have those older homes are always looking for stuff from the, oh, their wow. period. Because yeah. if they've got a house built in 1900, they want wood flooring from 1900 yeah, yeah. and lighting from 1900 because they want to keep their house authentic. I guess, is there any sort of movement, do you know, on creating some sort of deconstruction law in Houston or any appetite for that? Well, I'm about to find that out. I think there are people who would cheer it for sure. Yeah. The, the question is, will, would the city of Houston want to do that and mm. create that? And I don't know. We'll, we're about to find out. Yeah. But I think yeah. that, as we said, there's a lot of these houses being demolished and this stuff needs to go somewhere. And people who are tearing down these houses need to know there's a demand for it. That right. There are people who want it at, you know, whatever price it's available for. And this ties back, there's like two aspects. One is like the history aspect, but then also when we were talking about how, you know, real estate is such a source of carbon emissions. Right, right. You know, if you reuse it, then it's, especially if it's like local, you know, it's not even transporting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, reuse is a... I was curious, and just to dovetail to another property that was also connected to this estate, the Seraphim estate, there's another house now that went on the market on Sleepy Hollow Court. Um, Could you talk about that property? Yes. So that house is the one Fayez Seraphim actually lived in. Okay. With his wife, Susan Seraphim. And it's another historic property, right? Yeah. And its architect is maybe even more significant than John Staub, who did Mm. the one on River Oaks Boulevard. So its architect was Bertzel P. Briscoe. And Bertzel P. Briscoe designed lots of gorgeous homes in River Oaks and Cortland Place and Shadyside and Broad Acres and all of those old, beautiful neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all got something by Birdsell P. Briscoe. And, you know, books have been written about both John Staub and Birdsell P. Briscoe. Um, so this house on Sleepy Hollow, the house that um, Fias Seraphim lived in, was designed by Birdsell P. Briscoe. It was much smaller, maybe six or 7,000. Mm-hmm. Um, still large. Still large, <laughs> very large. And it has a tennis, uh, I think a tennis court and a swimming pool. Um, maybe not the tennis court, definitely a gated swimming pool. Yeah. And um, it's on the market for $13.5 million. Mm-hmm. And so everyone is really watching to see who's going to be yeah. buying that house and what are they going to do with it. What's been the upkeep, I guess? Because you had mentioned... Well, so he yeah. lived in it, so probably took better care of yeah. it. Yeah. And of course, you know, I looked at the pictures and they looked nicer, I felt then, like. Like you could potentially live there. Cause, uh, if I had I to. Mean, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I <laughs> guess I could bear it. Um, but I guess I'm wondering, we, we don't know what a future owner would do, but I mean, is there a case to preserve it? Definitely there's a case to preserve it. It's in better shape. Um, a lot of these houses, whenever someone buys them, they're always going to do something to them. Yeah. Like maybe it's just a matter of taste. You know, they used earth tones and they're people who like gray or the other way around. You know, they're going to minimally paint. A lot of these houses are going to have really beautiful millwork. 
um, mm. you know, just back when it was a real craft. And yeah. he took so much pride in creating this by hand, not by machines Machine. and big factories. And, and, and so the yeah. kind of person who's going to be drawn to a house like this generally certainly wants to be in River Oaks on this beautiful court where there's only a handful of houses. And, you know, hopefully they'll be drawn to the house because they love the house and they love the history and the architecture and they will preserve it. And whatever they do to it will enhance it. Mm. Fingers crossed. Wasn't there another house, too, that you wrote about? It was like another River Oaks home that other people gave up on. But this couple. Yes. Like, so I, I feel like I am knee deep in, in this really know, old houses a, right now. Yeah. So the story that was in last Sunday's um, Zest section and had again. been online for a few days prior was a house um, designed by Charles Tapley. And it was designed in the 1970s and was oh, okay. very so, modern. So, so not as historic. It, no, but yeah. like vintage yeah. for sure. It was from the 70s. So it was 50 years old or more. And its owners had done some weird things to it. And it had like the front door had no awning over it. So you just like if it was raining. You're just standing at the front door getting drenched. <laughs> and... Um, you know, it had a lot of steps up and down, like design where people liked sunken rooms and you would take one or two steps down. You know, now you think about aging in place and how many steps up and down do you want to go? Good point. How many places to trip and fall do you want in a house? And some of them are just too close together. Like, how many times are you going up and down? Do you want it to be more cohesive and uh, smoother and have yeah. special places set aside as a step down or a step up to get to rather than every other room is at a different level. And so a woman named Jackie Fisher, her husband, John Ofield, they bought the house. They lived in Highland Village and they were just fed up with the parking situation in Highland Village. It was like, you know, when friends would come over, they could never find a place to park. And so she I finds this- I can relate to that. Yeah, she <laughs> finds this house and bought it for lot value. So it's another one that was expected to be demolished. So she hires Laura Umansky of the Laura U Design Collective. And Laura is a serial renovator. She has she buys houses to live in and she renovates them. And she encourages her clients when they can to renovate. Mm. And so she had this is the third or fourth house she had worked on with Jackie. And she's like, Jackie, I think you need to keep this one. Let's not tear this down. I've got a vision for okay. what we can do. Let's streamline some of these step up and step down yeah. things. Let's do some cool things. They installed a koi pond in the front of the house. So as you're on the walkway leading to the front door, you're, you've got on each side of you this koi pond and put an awning over the front door. It, it's very cool. Yeah. And it just, it's very modern. They added on to it a little bit after, after they restored it and were living in it. They added on a home gym. That's the most beautiful home gym I've ever seen. Jealous. Like walnut paneled walls <sighs> and lights, these linear lights embedded in the ceiling and the pegboard where you would hang all your little weights and yeah. stretchy things and your ropes. It was burled wood. I mean, just gorgeous. The, everything about There's that room. There's a rock climbing yes. thing. It, it's just gorgeous. And they yeah. have these big windows and you look out to the backyard. She has all, She's a big gardener and right grows vegetables. She has these raised beds out there. But she also collected 
iconic modern furniture. So she had a platinum table and chairs that's in their breakfast area, and she had a lot of art. She had Eames chairs and just a lot of, like, really iconic furniture and it kind of fit perfectly in this really modern house but some of the funky things were in addition to these step up and down someone had decided that it would be a good idea to put the air conditioning vents with the canned lighting and in fact and so it would get condensation in there and leak and they would get water in the house coming it sounds like a fire hazard Mm. electricity and water don't work well together Mm -hmm. and in fact Jackie had called like an electrician to say I need somebody to come out and take a look at this we've got air conditioning vents in the lighting cans in the ceiling they're like you know ma'am I'm afraid that's not how that's done (laughs) you're like it was here this lady doesn't know what she's talking about and then he shows up and he's looking at he's like well I'll be darned it really is like that (laughs) because he's like Nobody in their right mind would ever do this. Like somebody did. So I guess with with um, you know the fact that there were all these little quirks, what motivated Jackie to say, "Okay, I'm not going to tear this down." You I know? think she was really inspired by the designer, and she okay. just really trusted yeah. her. But she is kind of an old soul too. Like mm. she saw the charm in it. She just yeah. thought it was a it was a hot mess of a house. I mean, there was a lot wrong with it. I don't know how much she spent on this res- renovation, mm. but it was a lot of money. But she yeah. got a deal on it because she paid lot value. Oh, she wasn't okay. even buying a house, oh. really. So she bought it with the idea it could be a teardown. I think the, I think the homeowner fully expected to tear to it be, down. Yeah, yeah. And, but when the designer was so excited about it, and they found out who the architect was, they're like, "Oh, we got to." They're save like, this. "This, yeah." It, not only is this really a cool house, but also, you know, Charles Tapley may not be as well known. But like, as I read more about him, I thought, "Gosh, I wish I had known him." Mm. Um, he taught at UH and at Rice, and. He did a lot of houses, but then he also got into designing. He designed a lot of churches and other houses of worship. He was a park planner and did a lot of work in parks throughout the area. And he just had his hand in a lot of things. And everything he did, he did very well. So it was nice. This is a different era because you've got Bertzel P. Briscoe and John Staub from right. like the 1920s and 30s. And then you've got Tapley from the 70s, a modern aesthetic that's very different, right. but is another era of architectural yeah. history and worth addressing also. Well, I think it just is a different example. It, it yes. kind of shows that not everyone that's buying these lots is, is tearing it down. Some people like decide that they want to go the route of preservation and and I don't know what you know what the right decision is there obviously it's going to depend on how much someone wants to put in it and or how inspired the designer is maybe <laughs> you know I think that historic preservation you just have to have a heart for the his, the history and the architecture yeah. because it is not a financially smart thing to do mm. a lot of the time you know people have, yeah. will say okay whatever you think the renovation is going to cost on this historic home now uh, triple it triple it wow <laughs> that's well, what it's really going to cost because you're going to uncover yes. crazy problems. This is the thing that I've written about um, a lot about adaptive reuse of commercial buildings. Like, for example, the Post, mm-hmm. HGX downtown. It's like you start something 
and then you don't know what you're going to uncover. But then once you've kind of committed to the adaptive reuse or to the the renovation, you know, you're like knee deep in it and you just got to keep going. So in some ways that can make an owner nervous. They don't know what they're going to get, you know. So you're along for the ride and planning as you go. Sometimes it seems like um, maybe it's different for depending on the property. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you also have to factor in how much does it cost to demolish a house? I, I've never demolished one, so I don't know, but I don't think it's cheap. And then if you've got a house in certain neighborhoods, you're building to the standard of the neighborhood. So right. if you're building a house on Inverness, you're building a house that's going to be 8 or $10 million mm. at yeah. least. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can renovate and spend 4 or $5 million, and that's a pretty expensive renovation. Or you can build new for 8 or $10 million and take even longer because you haven't even designed the house. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, wow. with the River Oaks. I mean, I hope that some of the historic homes are preserved. However, I'm sure that, you know, the new stuff that's coming up will be interesting, too, and I guess reflect our times. <laughs> they, they will. You know, they always reflect the taste of the people and yeah. the life of the people. And I will say, I think that, you know, like in the case of Jim Crane, um, he has lived in really beautiful houses, and I imagine... You know, he's hired good architects right. and they've built beautiful houses for him. And this one probably will be, too. Yeah. But, you know, we'll see who he ends up hiring and what, yeah, what gets um, designed. And then we'll all be driving around it when he puts up Christmas lights, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> that's my uh, that's my favorite time of year. It is. In River too. Oaks. Uh, but anyways, well, thank you so much, Diane, for for taking us on this little journey. It's, it's so fascinating to see the changes going on and just, you know, how um, how this neighborhood that was such a big part of Houston history is continuing to change. Yeah. Thank you for um, inviting me to this. It's been fun. And it's it's always fun to talk about uh, homes in Houston. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you ever have any interesting home renovations that you're working on, hit Diane up. She always does a good job. <laughs> Seriously. How, how can people reach you? Diane Dockowen at HoustonChronicle.com. Cool. She's also got a newsletter. And my newsletter, oh. Access Design, you can sign up for it. It is free. Uh, and it comes out every Tuesday morning. And I promise we won't clutter your inbox with all kinds of requests. It'll because just be that the would one not be newsletter. very design savvy. Yes, yes. right. Clean and simple. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you can reach me at MarissaLuck7 on Twitter or Marissa.luck at HoustonChronicle.com. And Rebecca, I'm at Twitter at R-A Shoots. That's R-A-S-C-H-U-E-T-Z. Yeah, we're always looking for podcast ideas, story ideas. So if you have a question or want to drop us a line, please do. Uh, If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend. Uh, Thank you to our print editors, Brian Rausch and Carol Motzinger. And Melissa Aguilar. Thank you to um, our editors at Pirate Studios and to Farrell Gibbs and his band All the Kimonos for the theme music. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Until next time. time.